Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And I'm back. I'm back this week. I'm better now. Yay! Uh, yay! So now I'm I'm talking with Anna, not <laughs> before Anna. Uh, but first things first, I'm back. Second thing second. A shout out to Katrina for subscribing over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thank you so much for supporting the show and we hope you enjoy all those bonus episodes and the monthly newsletter patrons. We are working to catch up on the bonus episodes. We, we owe you, we promise Mm -hmm. we're recording one right after this. So you'll hear that one first. Yeah. So we're recording a dirt after time works right after this. Yep. Time is a, is an arrow and I'm very excited to be taken on an extremely yikesy roller coaster ride. So, uh, hooray for that. Future me. Not not in this episode. No, 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 no. No, in the dirt. No. You have to listen to Dirt After Dark for those. Yeah. I also want to shout out friend of the show, Clark, who has sponsored an episode that I am extremely excited to write and record in the coming weeks. It's super duper right I up my alley. I will also be there. Yes. Anyway, it's, it is right up my alley. So I, I probably wouldn't have come up with the topic on my own. So thanks, Clark. And everybody stay tuned for that. How was that for the vaguest of vague teasers? So it was pretty vague. It's vague. But if you want to sponsor an episode on a topic that Anna and I will vaguely talk about and then research and then write and then record and share, uh, you can do that. You can do it. Because um, that's that's really great. Because like that's like the ways that things that we will definitely never come up with uh, come to us thanks to... The episode sponsors, and mm-hmm. those have been some of my favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to do that, sponsor my future favorite episode, <laughs> um, you can go to our website, thedirtpod.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, click on the icon that says sponsor an episode. Um, and for a minimum donation of $25, um, you can send us more, but you really don't have you to. You really don't. 25 will People do have it. been so generous. <laughs> Very generous. Um, you can send us a brief description of what you want and... Uh, of almost any topic, almost any, within archaeology or anthropology, mm-hmm. um, we may we've not had to do this yet, but we we reserve the right to kind of push back and be like maybe something else, um, and then we will dive into it. Yeah, and so that's it for this so, week's huh great production meeting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's that's it for the business meeting. Thank you all for coming. Let's have an episode. Yeah. This one is another one that we've been meaning to do for quite a while now. And we've said that every single time we've covered an adjacent topic or news story on the show, we're doing it. So we're talking about indigenous science and knowledge. This is a broad category, to say the least. In some cases, it has to do with oral histories about how and when groups of people occupied different landscapes. Sometimes it's explanations of natural phenomena. Sometimes it's in the arena of medicine or natural sciences. Yeah. And so um, up top, full disclosure, um, as uh, I think longtime listeners 
No. Um, neither Anna nor I are of indigenous descent. Nope. Um, and so we are in a position to examine how this information gets transmitted and used both by indigenous groups and the public, but like specifically in sort of like settler mm-hmm. um, science. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, but like we don't claim any of this scholarship as our own or like any of this like knowledge as our own. Um, so we'll be mentioning a handful of books throughout the show by indigenous uh, scholars and authors, um, and also mentioning other indigenous scholars' work. Um, and so please do head over to the show notes at thedirtpod.com slash episodes to dive deeper or like click in your RSS feed. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'll yeah. pop up there too. Yeah. So we're going to divide the episode into a couple different parts. You may have seen the title, They Told You So, and that's what we're going to tackle first. So these are stories that we've covered on the show before, some we've just touched on, some we've talked about in more depth. And basically, this is a refresher for you and for us of instances where indigenous sources had an explanation for something for basically forever. And then non-indigenous researchers came along and went, oh, it actually was this way. Who knew? And all the local descendant communities said, uh, we did. So I, I just want to like sort of head off with, with like some some thoughts about this because oh, I've been please, thinking about please. this a lot lately, um, sort of apart from the script. Um, so sort of outside of the script, but just thinking about the um, uh, like I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I follow a lot of people on Twitter who have a lot of like really brilliant observations to make about things. And um, right now there are some conversations happening on Twitter around um, the exploitation and extraction of indigenous science and indigenous knowledge um, by non-indigenous scientists Mm -hmm. and scholars. Um, And that is something that um, does not sit well with me. Um, And so thinking about how, so there's, there's this sort of what you just described and what I think some of these examples are going to talk about of kind of that, like the, the, like the etiologies or like the myth and like those sorts of things, like actually it's yeah. like proven by like um, Western science, settler science, global North, like scientific, like empiricism or something. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's that. And there's that sort of that entry point of, um, of like very like basic, like what we, but there also is something that is much harder it could be harder to kind of put one's finger on of like identifying these ways of extracting knowledge or sort of commodifying indigenous science and indigenous knowledge and thinking about how it can be used in in, to further sort of like capitalist aims or to further uh, systems of um, the, the, systems that otherwise harm or like invalidate the existence of indigenous groups or sort of the kind of stuff that um, I got into, we got into at the end of our conversation about maroon communities Mm -hmm. around like who's doing this work and who's it for and like, should you be the one doing it? And so I just want to like bring that up at the top of the episode. um, And maybe we can talk about it more at the end, but I didn't Mm want to leave it. I didn't want to structure this like a, I didn't communicate this to you, but I didn't want to like thinking about this and how I wanted to kind of participate in this episode. I didn't want to make it like a like facts, 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 facts discussion. Like I kind of wanted to kind of preface it with like this is 
like this, this is a problem. <laughs> and so just trying to even just be honest about how, like, I don't know how I feel about us tackling this topic, even yeah. if we're I was doing nervous it in a very like, script. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, and, and yeah, so I, I don't want what I want our listeners to do is to listen to this and then and and then go read other people's work or um if or uh i would like this to be followed up with like an interview with someone who yeah. engages with with this um like uh, with, with the sort of um do like being indigenous doing science in a like global north scientific construct like sort of academia yeah. and sort of the systems or um sort of bridging that uh like bridging the 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 chasm or the gap or sort of the the wall between (laughs) um sort of um academia with a capital a and um sort of indigenous sovereignty indigenous knowledge and, and thinking about those those sorts of things so i don't want this please listeners please don't let this be the only thing that you that don't, you consume don't just in, in rely on us about. to tell you about all this yeah like and we'll do like we'll we'll like throw out names and folks like, who there's gonna be some hefty I, show notes for this one yeah well and also just like there are people who i get a lot out of twitter by reading just sort of people's observations on things and it's one thing to read their work and their work is very good and brilliant and i you know like i'm thinking of like kim Tallbear, like i like reading her work but like thinking about how she responds to things and talks about things and the minutia of sort of of a of a practice more than just like a set of 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 sort of knowledge mm-hmm. it's it's also like having seeing how that knowledge is how one produces and consumes and and, re- and reflects upon and so like i want this to sort of i want I, like i want folks to start following these folks and actually like reading what they say and like thinking about their perspectives because a lot of these folks that we follow occasionally will say things and share things that make me uncomfortable. And then I get to like take a second and think about sit that. Sit with that. Yeah. Yeah. And sit with my discomfort. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So I just kind of wanted to <laughs> like, um, I know that was a little rangy, but I, I, I wanted to just kind of bring that up before we get sure. started of just like, this is sort of what we're thinking about and, and we, do, I don't want to be doing this in lieu of someone else doing it. Right. You know? Yes. We're not, like it's not here zero to, sum. No, we're like not here to take up somebody else's space. We're here to introduce you to the voices of other people whom you can then listen to because they know more than we do. Exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> Which like, I kind of want us to do in every episode that we do about anything. But in this particular instance, there is like a, a, um, a a long and strong tradition of of people that uh, look like us and occupy like similar spaces in the world to ours who do all that talking for others and like we are, we are aware that there there are people like for whom this is a um, a more existential issue. Well, here we're talking about we're we're introducing a topic that not only is relevant to many many descendant communities but is relevant to like a whole field of scholars. Yeah, and yeah, like and we're not either of those things. Yes. 
Yeah. And, 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 and so when you have, um, like there are, it's, it is very strange. Like there is something very peculiar about, um, anthropology where you are studying people and Mm -hmm. sometimes you're studying people. Like sometimes one scholarship ends up wrapped up in one's identity. Mm -hmm. And then other times one scholarship is sort of not, uh, it, it's it's sort of prescriptive and sort of is very like looking from the outside, which sure. is like the origins of anthropology. Sure and so just thinking about like, I don't know, not trying to like take a seat at the table. No, I'm trying to show you where the table is. Go, 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 go look at that table. I don't know. That, that metaphor is going to fall apart really quickly. Yeah. So, okay. Never mind. I, okay. So please. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to quote here from a Smithsonian Magazine article by George Nicholas from 2018, which is actually republished from the conversation that nicely sums up sort of what we're pondering today and and hopefully what these case studies will illustrate. Uh, Quote, despite the wide acknowledgement of their demonstrated value, many scientists continue to have an uneasy alliance with traditional knowledge and indigenous oral histories. On the one hand, these types of knowledge are valued when they support or supplement archaeological or other scientific evidence. But when the situation is reversed, when traditional knowledge is seen to challenge scientific truths, then its utility is questioned or dismissed as myth. Science is promoted as objective, quantifiable, and the foundation for real heavy quotes around real knowledge creation or evaluation, while traditional knowledge may be seen as anecdotal, imprecise, and unfamiliar in form. And then from later in the article, as ways of knowing Western and indigenous knowledge share several important and fundamental attributes. Both are constantly verified through repetition and verification, inference and prediction, empirical observations and recognition of pattern events. So that's two things to think about is this uneasy alliance idea um and the kind of interplay between traditional and capital s scientific like western scientific knowledge but then also who they're for who's doing them and and what the implications of that are well and then also thinking about like who with whom rests the power in the situation yeah exactly um you structured that like a hemingway title (laughs) With whom lies the power? <laughs> but um, it's something that, like, I, I think that that that's something like I will keep hammering on through this of just thinking about like, where's the balance um, but, of power? But, well, where's the balance of power, and also like who gets the, to be the arbiter of what is real? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's what um, I wanted to em- emphasize yeah. with the the Western versus Indigenous knowledge. Like, if there is an uneasy alliance, it's because one side thinks the other side is less valid or less real. And so, yeah, one side either implicitly or explicitly invalidates the other side, which in turn is left out of Mm -hmm. the conversation is, is devalued and is sort of in a position of like, uh, like disenfranchised. Yeah. And then exploited when it turns out that some of these, knowledge yeah like when it and it was just being like wasn't that fun like kind of like wasn't uh, that a cool result that we we matched stories and and that speaks to a disregard for the um the continuity and the persistence of knowledge through oral traditions oh yeah and like and and non 
non-historic tradition. Yeah. So like other means of of recording um, knowledge of 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 like capturing and 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 um, furthering um, inform- like so thinking about how there are plenty of like artistic traditions that are used as both uh, that they can be symbolic, but they can also be uh, mnemonic devices mm-hmm. of, of to like to, to structure and organize knowledge and information. Yeah. And like, just because um, you and I, Anna don't belong, like are not a part of any, um, the communities or, or like sort of institutions that uh, involve oral history mm-hmm. and, and sort of like oral transmission of knowledge. It sort of makes it harder for us to recognize that it is possible. <laughs> like there is like a capacity. It's not that people like forget it or, you know, just kind of wing it or, or things like that. Like that's not, it, it can be a consistent story, like a consistent set of knowledge that, that proceeds that's something that that one like one from like a like a white settler background or or like from any like just sort of like non uh well just any any and also not speaking of indigenous knowledge as a monolith like that's not like there's plenty of indigenous science that is very much written down uh, and and so thinking about how like just because it's not a part of our experience and not a part of like our like toolkit for like um, acquiring and producing knowledge doesn't mean that it isn't a viable one. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's let's get into part one, which is a roundup of, um, of they told you so about the past and about sort of um, archaeological records and so a lot of these are things that we've already covered if not all of them um but just in case you haven't heard those episodes because we try to we try to highlight this when we can and this is sort of the first time that we're kind of yeah most of the like we have covered all of these it's just that some of them we just like mentioned in passing and some great yeah that's that's the distinction (laughs) there so here we here we go and here's um Definitely the first thing that I think of when <laughs> I, I think of this topic. Um, and this, this is something we discussed, um, nearly a hundred episodes ago, um, <laughs> in episode, in episode 93 about Rapa Nui. Uh, and so we are talking about the walking Moai statue, well, the walking Moai, the statues. Um, yeah. So according to, uh, Rapa Nui history, um, the Moai, which are these massive stone sculptures of ancestral figures, uh, we they, they part they would be partially underground. Mm-hmm. They, they'd be the, sort of their shoulders and up is above ground. Yeah, yeah. But, and, they, but they do um, have little bodies. Yeah, they also yeah they have bodies. Um, so the, they they walked. They said like, well, how do how did they get them here? And they said, well, they they walked there. And everyone's like, all oh, those silly natives um and so there had been various other non-indigenous possible explanations floated over the years um of how they got there you'd be like oh they were carried by sledges or they were you know like whatever rolled on logs and like that deforested the island and then they yeah exactly right and that's how they collapsed because they yeah they they hit a tipping point and Mm -hmm. you know all that stuff um but 
in 2013, Terry Hunt of the University of Hawaii and Carl Lipo of uh, CSU Long Beach showed that as few as 18 people could with strong three strong ropes and a bit of practice, um, they could easily and relatively quickly maneuver a 10 foot, so three meter, five ton Moai replica a few hundred yards, which is a few hundred meters. <laughs> um, and so the Moai have these um, sort of rotund tummies mm-hmm. um, that that allowed the statues to be tilted forward easily and, and heavy D-shaped bases that could have allowed handlers to, to roll and sort of rock back and forth. And so um, there are, there's video of this, there's like GIFs of this, but it's something that they, um, so you've got these, these two people who are not Rapa Nui, uh, who are researchers who, um, I, I don't know what the sort of logic was. If they're like, let's try the thing that people say, like, like, what, yeah. what, what would it mean to walk? Like, I don't know if. I think they were, I, yeah, I, don't, I think they pulled from the. Yeah. I don't know how they history. like arrived at the hypothesis that they, they tested out. But when you look at how it's done, it looks like, like it's just, going, they walk. Doop, 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 doop. Yeah. They, they are walking cause you're, you're walking it and it, so and it moves. Trying to move a bookcase. And, that is the, yeah. So it, yeah, it's the same thing of like, when you talk about moving a bookcase from one side of the living room to the other, you say, well, we'll walk it over. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you like, you pivot one corner, pivot the other corner and you just walk it over. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, do that with a Moai like, too. Yeah. And so that's just a very, very straightforward. Yep. <laughs> just like, that's, yep. They that's, did. That they did in that. fact do that. Yeah. And from last year's Spooktober. Episode 159, Here There Be Monsters, we've got the Ayahos. So in the Pacific Northwest region, indigenous legends refer to the Ayahos as a shapeshifter, often appearing as an enormous serpent. So this spirit is associated with rushing waters and shaking earth. As it turns out, thanks to research published in 1992, there's evidence for an earthquake around 900 CE of an estimated magnitude of 7.4, which is big. That caused mm-hmm. tsunami-type waves and left serpent-shaped scars along its fault line. So, the Ayahos isn't a monster of folklore. It's an oral history of a traumatic event. Yeah. And um, and so, I, I, I love this one. Mm-hmm. Me too. Because um, I... Made my little scone explode when well, you told I, me. My brain. Yeah, and so th- I recommend um, you you listen to that episode because um, I I pulled from a, a, a bit more from that around how um, like it is like pretty like quite precise of of the the, the location fault line yeah yeah the the locations and the description it's like oh yeah that is. Um, pretty straightforward. Yep. And, and so, and, and this is one of those things of like, um, getting into, I don't want to venture too far into being like, oh, it's metaphor because like for some communities, like it's like, no, no, like it's, no, that it's was real. like part of their lived experience. It's how they yeah, experienced like this it, is, and it and it. Yeah. And, it. and, and so thinking about, um, and, and so I've spent some time over the years trying to, um, kind of uncouple my um, 
sort of like my, my cultural perspective of, of sort of like what I consider to be like metaphor, like other types of rhetoric and other types of, of determining what is real. Um, because it's, it's sort of, you have, when you, we talk about, uh, so in the Ayaho story, there's sort of the serpent and there's a whale and mm-hmm. I believe there's and a, a bird. And a thunderbird of some sort. Yeah. They, yeah. So there's, there's the bird and the bird Dives kind of down. plunges it. Yeah. And so it's this, this whole thing. And it's just like, well, um, I do not want to, I, I, I don't want to like invalidate like this story by being like, there's no such thing as a giant bird. It's just like, well, like, that doesn't is matter. Not, like, like is, yeah, that, that part is not matter. part of the question. Yeah. Yeah. And so thinking about, um, that sort of stuff. And, um, for me, that's something that I see as one of the sneaky ways in which like settler colonial mindsets work to erode, um, the, and like delegitimize. Yeah. I've, I've had to um, unlearn that too. Yeah. And so that's, that's something that, um, I really th- think the, the most I can contribute to this episode is just be like, here's something I'm working on, which is like, <laughs> yeah, yikes. Um, yeah. So next we have the Billy Ape who we discussed in um, Spooktober two years ago, yeah. the crypto anthropology episode. Bigfoot's. Yeah. Um, and so the Billy Ape, B-I-L-I. Yeah, Billy, not, not William um, Ape. William Ape. Um, So the Billy Ape is a much sensationalized primate population in what is today the Democratic Republic of Congo. So Shelley Williams, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, who is an experimental psychologist affiliated with National Geographic. This is like a a big old box of red flags. (laughs) Um, A bouquet of them. She claimed to be the first scientist to to see these apes. Um, So according to Williams, who claims she learned the local language, Lingala, not the ape language. No, like a a human human people language, Lingala, which is a a, Um, a Bantu language. uh, So the the local populace classified great apes into two distinct groups. They are the tree beaters, which disperse high into the trees to stay safe and easily succumb to the poison arrows used by local hunters. Then there are the lion killers, which seldom climb trees, are bigger and darker, and are unaffected by poison arrows. So um, uh, Williams speculated wildly that this could be some sort of subspecies of gorilla, maybe even a hybrid ape. But no. But But also, this was something that... um, explorers so colonial explorers capital e with, pith helmet explorers yeah we're like trying to find mm-hmm. um these because like white people didn't know about gorillas for a really long time like in the scale the the grand scheme of things like that was one where they were like gorillas what? don't want to be seen yeah right yeah like gorillas do not wish to be perceived and they're like pretty good at that and and so and, and so there were like all these rumors and they were like, oh, this like wasn't like they aren't the locals are like trying to scare us by talking about these weird apes. And it's just like, yeah, and you just didn't um, see him. And and then um, and then also having like problematic takes about said weird apes uh, that you've uh-huh. not seen. Um, and so 
this is something that they were like, maybe, like, maybe they, like, it's a mythic ape. Um, like, oh, is this the, um, a jungle yeti kind of thing? Mm. Um, but nah, nah. Uh, so mitochondrial DNA, uh, resolved from hairs taken from nests in 2003, um, found that these were chimps. The yep. billy apes were chimps. chimps. They just happened to be very large chimps who behaved a bit differently from other chimps. So as... <laughs> I just like, I don't know. That really hit me. I'm just like, oh, I'm a large chimp who behaves differently from other chimps. I'm real. Um, so they build nests on the ground like gorillas do um, and were occasionally observed to eat meat, um, which is like a thing that chimps do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so sometimes from the carcasses of leopards, as was observed by another researcher. So it's not clear whether the, the, those apes, apes in question, uh, killed the predator or were simply scared scavenging the carcass but it does account um, for the the lion eater yeah um, so like name yeah so you know the the local like lingala speakers of of what's now part of the drc were like knew their environment and like knew the ecology of yeah. their environment and, and so he was like, living there no no um and so um well <laughs> Gosh. Yep. Shelley Williams also claimed the Billy Apes howled at the moon. Um, so there is zero evidence of them doing that based on other researchers' work. Uh, so, yikes. Yikes. Um, yep. But <sighs> let's move mm. on, shall we? <laughs> so let's have a quick ad break and then we'll talk about a few more told you told, told you so's uh told us so's from the past before moving on to um the future the future it's chris webster again if you haven't checked out our new parent website culturomedia.com then please do culturo is spelled k-u-l-t-u-r-o and it's where we promote all of our live events we've got one coming up in november Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. 
So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. And we are back. Uh, And we've got more case studies that underscore the depth of indigenous knowledge in its many forms, Mm -hmm. many homes. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the reason I texted you to ask if it would freak you out to talk about birds of prey. (laughs) I was like, in a good way, yes. Um, So here is an extremely cool example from Australia. In interviews, ethnographic observations, and ceremonies dating back more than a century, uh, the indigenous peoples of Australia's Northern Territory describe a group of birds they call firehawks. These birds can control fire by carrying burning sticks to new locations in their beaks or talons. So the idea is that these hawks use fires to help find food by causing small animals like lizards, mammals, insects, arachnids, snakes, Mm -hmm. to flee the fire, becoming easy targets, which is like a super cool legend, right? Yeah, totally Mm -hmm. metal. So what a cool story. Wow. Yeah. So here's an excerpt from the abstract of a 2017 paper by a team led by Mark Bonta and Robert Gosford in the Journal of Ethnobiology. Quote, we document indigenous ecological knowledge and non-indigenous observations of intentional fire spreading by the fire foraging raptors black kite, Milvus migrans, whistling kite, Haliastor sphinorus, and brown falcon, Falco berigora, and tropical Australian savannas. Observers report both solo and cooperative attempts, often successful, to spread wildfires intentionally via single occasion or repeated transport of burning sticks in talons or beaks. This behavior, often represented in sacred ceremonies, is widely known to local people in the Northern Territory, where we carried out ethno-ornithological research from 2011 to 2017. Does sound like they are... Ethno-ornithological inter- research. Interviewing birds, yeah, but I, I recognize they aren't. Ma'am? Uh, Ma'am? <clears throat> It was also reported to us from Western Australia and Queensland. Though Aboriginal rangers and others who deal with bushfires take into account the risks posed by raptors that cause controlled burns to jump across fire breaks, official skepticism about the reality of avian fire spreading hampers effective planning for landscape management and restoration, end quote. Yeah, so, I mean, fire breaks are are usually ditches dug to prevent fires from spreading. But if you have something that could fly and bring fire across that ditch. And so like the, the local non-indigenous, you know, management people are just like, yeah, wait, no, the fire, it's, it's a fire break. It's fine. It's well, not- and also like saying like birds don't do that when they sure do <laughs> when they sh- super do. Yeah. Um, I also can rec- I also can understand why um, a bird that can carry fire in its beaker talons would like make its way into a ceremonial dance. Yeah, because like <laughs> it's that madness. is yep, <laughs> blowing my mind. Yeah, it's really um, cool, and and it is for that reason for hunting. They've they've realized yeah. because bushfires are seasonal in Australia. They do happen. They've yeah. happened for forever, and so. They notice that when things are on fire, all the little critters go, ah, and you can see them and get them because they're looking at the fire, not you. 
blowing my mind. Okay, so we'll get into get some more into implications of indigenous observations and land stewardship practices a little bit later in the episode. But that is so so very cool, and um, this is also. I just wanted to explode your brain with that one. The whole, like the whole concept of um, um, Aboriginal Indigenous land stewardship, Mm -hmm. and and how like if Australia were to Mm. uh, lean on Mm -hmm. its like traditional stewards and and like the the conservation science that has been um, uh, certainly improved over the past 50,000 years of yeah. people living there um that they it it would get could better be a lot better than it is yep. i mean it would it would certainly like you know climate change is affecting that at a higher at a, like a faster rate and like yeah there are other factors but it could be better than it is yeah exactly and so this is i did not see this coming when we were talking about <laughs> Mm. An, an example from Australia and <laughs> fires. Um, that is so cool. Next up, an indigenous legend about the creation of one of the places way, 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 way up on my list of places I want to go so bad. And that is oh. Crater Lake. This legend comes from the Klamath people whose home is in what is today Oregon in the Western U.S. So as the story goes, Mount Mazama, which in the Klamath language, I believe is Moyaina, Moyaina. Um, was once home to a cantankerous volcano god. He became besotted with a local beauty, a very pretty girl, and sent his servant to ask for her hand in marriage. The girl was frightened of him because he looked terrifying, him being the servant, and also she didn't want to live inside of a mountain. The volcano god threatened the Klamath people with fire and fury unless the woman came to live with him. But... Her people called upon their protector, a rival deity who fought the volcano god, eventually causing his mountain home to collapse in on him and fill with water. The Klamath taught each new generation the importance of avoiding Crater Lake, lest they disturb the evil god within. Now, geologists have determined that around 7,600 years ago, when the Klamath were definitely living in this area, uh, that is around the time of the terminal eruption of the former volcano, Mount Mazama, and the creation of the landscape that exists today, a giant inert caldera filled with water. The Klamath were there all along, and their memories of that ancient landscape-changing disaster stayed with them. So very similar to the uh, Ayaho story, mm-hmm. at least in terms of like seismic activity. <laughs> well, and, and also just like pretty huge thing to happen like yeah something that no. changes the landscape there was a and mountain and now there's like to it. an upside down mountain full yeah, of water like the mountain fell down yep like that would be pretty big that would stick with you <laughs> yeah and so that's and i i think that, that that's also something that kind of um that is something that would stay with like with a community to mm-hmm. be like the the world has the capacity to do these things. Oh, is, yeah. It's like an important again. lesson. Like yeah, it could happen yeah. again. Something else could happen. That's um, just as terrible. Like that. Yeah. Like differently um, earth shaking, as it were. Mm. So let's take one more ad break and then talk about how indigenous knowledge is used now how it can be used now and how and some examples of indigenous researchers who are um, weaving that knowledge into their work in sort of global north academic yeah spaces yeah and and keep thinking about the issues of power and and extractiveness as we as we do that 
Okay. Extraction. Yep. Extractiveness is extraction. That's the word for that. It's a noun. Okay. Ad break. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. And we're back. And listeners, cast your minds back about 40 minutes to that quote from <laughs> the Smithsonian about the uneasy alliance between science and indigenous knowledge so how do you resolve that uneasiness you one thing you can do is to look to indigenous people who are also scientists this is especially relevant in talking about land management practices and climate change so here's where we'll be recommending some books by indigenous authors and some scholars to follow although we always want to learn from sources close to the knowledge. So if there's someone we've missed and you want to point us towards their work, please let us know at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to start with an excerpt from Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. We've mentioned her work before, and hopefully these bits that I'm pulling out, in addition to being really interesting, will show just how beautifully she writes. But I also wanted to share this part because it added a significant amount to my very surface level knowledge of the three sisters plants. And so that might be something that you've heard of listeners, the staples of early agriculture in the Americas, um, or maybe you know it as the basis of succotash, which is which is a dish that's often found in kind of sad pale versions in cafeterias or as frozen mixes in the grocery aisle. But it's if it's, it's made right, it's really good. Uh, but there is so much more to the three sisters, which are corn, beans and squash. So this isn't the full text. I've snipped out some sections and summarized others, but the words are Robin Wall Kimmerer's. Quote, The corn is the firstborn and grows straight and stiff. It is a stem with a lofty goal. Laddering upward leaf by long-ribbed leaf, it needs to grow tall quickly. Making a strong stem is its highest priority at first. It needs to be there for its younger sister, the bean. The bean focuses on leaf growth while the corn concentrates on height. Just about the time that the corn is knee-high, the bean shoot changes its mind, as middle children are wont to do. Instead of making leaves, it extends itself into a long vine, a slender green string with a mission. The tip can travel a meter in a day, pirouetting in a loopy dance circle, until it finds what it is looking for, a corn stem or some other vertical support. Touch receptors along the vine guide it to wrap itself around the corn in a graceful upward spiral. Meanwhile, the squash, the late bloomer of the family, is steadily extending herself over the ground, moving away from the corn and beans. Without the corn's support, the beans would be an unruly tangle on the ground, vulnerable to bean-hungry predators like amber. The corn takes care of making light available. The squash reduces weeds with its broad, flat leaves. What about the beans? To see her gift, you have to look underground. And so I've somewhat uh, paraphrase this section. Beans are members of the legume family, which has the remarkable ability to take nitrogen from the air and turn it into usable nutrients, thanks to special bacteria that live on the bean roots called rhizobium that can only turn nitrogen into food if they have a home to live in, and the bean provides that. When a bean root meets a microscopic rod of rhizobium underground, chemical communications are exchanged and a deal is negotiated. The bean will grow an oxygen-free nodule to house the bacterium, and in return, the bacterium shares its nitrogen with all three sisters. 
So end quote. I only really knew that abstractly, that those three plants were always grown together and, and helped each other somehow. Early indige indigenous agriculturalists figured out this relationship, not necessarily on the level of knowing about the bacterium, but but they figured out this relationship between these three plants and it entered into storytelling. Zoe Todd had a really great thread that I dug up um, about um, Kimmerer's work and talking about how Kimmerer's work, so both braiding sweetgrass and gathering moss, she's like, oh, these are you know, beautifully well-written books. Like she's taught them in her classes. They're really, really popular with white readers. Um, and they're, um, uh, she, she sees them as a great entry point to discussing indigenous knowledge. But as she outlines in the thread, I'll include in the show notes, um, neither of them, um, I think the word, the phrase that she uses is, um, Neither braiding sweetgrass nor gathering moss tends to the deep, deep lineages of indigenous scholarship in Canada or the U.S. Like this mm -hmm. is stuff that people have been people have been publishing in like was publishing scholarship like indigenous scholars. And and so this is sort of a um, it's 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 very accessible and it's uh, good, but it's it should not be. It shouldn't be the thing that makes someone go, I wish there were more of this <laughs> or just like, why isn't anyone else doing this? Why aren't people talking about this? Like, this is a case of like, they have been, they do, they continue to. Um, and uh, so I'll include that thread yeah, of just no, sort good. of like responding to that um, because I, I want us to nudge our, our listeners past the like, the, the work that is like palatable to white audiences. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So now we move from squash to sustainability and uh, we'll hear from um, Jessica Hernandez, who is a Maya Chorti and Zapotec environmental scientist who is on fire. Mm -hmm. So her book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science, um, she breaks down the ways that Western agriculture has harmed the landscape and offers examples of indigenous knowledge as a means to heal that damage. So much of the book is a chronicle about how indigenous groups and their knowledge have been marginalized and ignored. Um, an example of indigenous resource management uh, being not only ignored but actively suppressed is the Bolt decision, um, a court action by Judge George Bolt in 1974 that granted tribes in the Pacific Northwest access to salmon fishing rights as sovereign nations, i.e., like without having to get a fishing license. Yeah, uh, like from the state, the, the way that I would to yep. go get some salmon. Mm. Um, so, uh, quoting Hernandez, um, it is important to note that for the Washington state tribes, salmon is their cultural and traditional food that plays an important role in their creation story. This means that salmon is also their relative and essential to maintaining their cultures. However, because of the boom and bust that the fisheries in the Pacific Northwest experienced when salmon populations were thriving there, coupled with the climate changes and habitat destruction, salmon populations have drastically decreased. Salmon is also medicine, tradition, and ancestral knowledge that the Washington state tribes continue to sustain to this day. End quote. So I want to pop in here with a quick disclaimer. I read several chapters, but I have not finished the book. But I also read several reviews of the book. And I wanted to share that with you, Amber, because 
the way that at least for the most part, what I could tell white readers and reviewers had to say was expressing disappointment that this book was much more a documentation of ways in which systems of mass production and colonialism have decentered and ignored indigenous practices and knowledge and less of a like, well, here's some solutions based on indigenous oh, so knowledge. Like, You're being problem oriented, not solutions oriented. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, that that's what they wanted all over the like, reviews. Fix it. Yep. That's my reviewer voice. Good reviewer um, voice. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much... That's, I read a handful really, of reviews that yeah. basically expressed mm. that. As if it isn't enough to... Like... To document that history? Yeah. yeah, to like... Yeah, to, to sort of even like lay the foundation for like... I wonder if people just like sort of looked at the title and were like, Healing Landscapes. This book's going to tell me how to do it. Probably. Yeah. Like, I think that that's something that that's what people, in my experience, that's what like nice white people want out of their relation, like out of conversations, like dialogue, well, monologues yeah. with talking like, indigenous, <laughs> like indigenous science, indigenous knowledge as this sort of like native wisdom or this sort of thing of like, they were here for millennia in harmony with, with the environment and each other. And like this very, um, this, this very, uh, sort of like, it's a bit noble savagey. It is, it is. And it's also this, this kind of, um, like settler amnesia or something of <laughs> just like that, like, well, it'll be fine if we listen to them and let them fix things up and like, not like, it's just like, come fix our problems with like, with no sense of like sovereignty or land back or anything like that. No, no. Like that's just fix it. So we can go back to doing what we were doing. Yeah. Like it. I still want to sell fish at whole foods. Help me do that, please. Why are you complaining? Like, I think that that's, yep. Um, great yeah also like like as as if she can fix it like as if like like you know you read the book and you're like i could see why one person can't fix it like sort of thing yeah there is a system that has been built with the explicit purpose of preventing like indigenous like conservation and stewardship yeah from like the point was to interrupt it yep i've got some it's a bad time for white people reviewing books. I, well, <laughs> just can't stop. Maybe they should have a quick think before they review that book. Cool. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, uncool. No. <laughs> uncool. I agree. Yes. So as a final example of land management practice, and, and now that <laughs> now that we've had that discussion, I sort of, in retrospect, wish I hadn't structured this script quite this way, because now I, it's like, <laughs> here are some genuine like things that are proposed as solutions for, for land management. <laughs> so that was a bit of a self own, but, um, you know, it, I did it as just like the past the future. <laughs> just like, this is what happens when you don't write scripts that, that I you know. think of. <laughs> I know I don't live in your brain. I did my best. Okay. Let's again, let's go into this with the, the knowledge of the systems that are in place. Let's just let's put a pin in that. Um, this is 
maybe the most relevant aspect of indigenous land stewardship to the experiences of many of our listeners, because wildfires have been getting worse and worse in the western part of the United States. And in Australia, there have been devastating bushfires in the past few years as well. So again, lots of factors contributing here, global warming, etc. But one thing that could help to manage or even prevent massive wildfires in the future is looking to past practices of controlled burns. And so I'm going to Take little snippets here from the National Park Service website. Quote, Cultural burning refers to the indigenous practice of the intentional lighting of smaller controlled fires to provide a desired cultural service, such as promoting the health of vegetation and animals that provide food, clothing, ceremonial items, and more. So I've got some examples of these, um, and I'm glad I know about them. And and also, I'm, I'm glad... It's really interesting to me, um, a person who has spent a long time thinking about the the use of fire in the very, 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 very deep past to to think about the breadth of fire use as a as a subsistence tool in general. So Native Americans in the Great Lakes region have used fire for many generations to improve habitat, increase blueberry production and clear the understory of forests of vegetation. The Lakota tribes in the Black Hills of South Dakota use fire to clear campsites of brush and tall grasses to protect camps from wildfires and also remove cover that would provide uh, a, a way for an enemy to sneak up on them. They mm. also used fire to assist in securing food sources such as bison. By burning an area in the fall, the bison could be excluded from that area by removing any forage that would be used by them during the winter months. So they take away the food and that forced the bison to graze in unburned areas. And that was planned out ahead of time so that hunters knew where to go to find their prey. So they would intentionally burn except for areas around their winter hunting camps. So they would say, okay, we're setting up camp here. The bison will be here. Great. For more than 4,000 years, American Indians have relied on Yosemite Valley's meadows and oak woodlands to provide food, medicine, and materials for baskets, string, and shelter. Yosemite's early inhabitants periodically set fires to promote the growth of milkweed, dogbane, sedgeroot, and bunchgrass. And research on mud cored from Yosemite Valley showed a marked increase in ash deposits after people began living in Yosemite Valley, so documenting these mm -hmm. controlled fires. There was one more little Australian thing that caught my interest, and I, I want to look more into it later, but this was just like a, huh, um, which is the, the Christmas beetle, which is Anoplognathus politicolis, which is a little, little beetle, kind of looks like a Japanese beetle. And it's, it's like it, what got in my ear. Yeah, sorry. We don't need to talk about that. Okay. Mm. Indigenous Australians uh, use these beetles like when they appear and in, in what number they appear. Not specific numbers, mm -hmm. like 17, but just like, or like a, a lot, lot or, or a little, not many. Yeah. 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 Uh, as an indicator of dry or wet season to predict crop yields. So it's like if only a few show up, it's going to be kind of a sparse year. There's a zillion. Interesting. It's going to be wet. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is really only scratching the surface of examples of contributions of indigenous science to like current non-indigenous research. Um, and but the, also the long history of indigenous research as its own yeah. entity. Yeah. 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 It doesn't so, exist solely to contribute to Western science. Right. But what I'm saying, yeah, like that, that it, it exists on its own terms mm -hmm. and sometimes um, global North researchers, settler researchers notice it, um, which is 
like that's kind of how it works. Um, so we've touched on many, many other examples of the almost four years of doing this show. Um, so we talked about how there have been, um, pro- there's a project ongoing to document indigenous plant knowledge as languages die out. Like this was, this, this is, is South something America, that I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so we we discussed this in June of last year. Um, And if I remember correctly, it's it's done so that it will not be translated like into Portuguese or English. No, it's for these groups. Yeah. It is is for the communities Mm -hmm. to um, to maintain their their science and and their medicine. Not to mention their Um, language. Yeah. And also their language. Um, there's uh, clam gardens and, and fish management. Um, and so thinking about um, ecology and economy um, and, and just clam gardening. Um, <laughs> Sounds fun. And, and then, yeah, like as, as we mentioned before, um, controlled burns in Australia and uh, the traditional land stewards. Um and then, and then also uh, Rapa Nui and just sort of the whole thing of like, once again, Jared Diamond being wrong, like they did not deforest themselves into a collapse. Nope. Like this was um, just... That's not just, what happened. It's not what happened. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned, uh, we've talked about a couple of these people already, but um, also like uh, folks that I really encourage you to follow on Twitter, see who they're in conversation with, see who they follow, see who they, who's, who's work that they um, are engaging with regularly and the, the, you know um Jessica Hernandez is is um is just really great like she's she's really great and she's having a moment and I included um, a link for a, a YouTube video of an interview with her so if you want to awesome. have her speak in her own words yeah um and then uh Kim Tallbear is someone else she's she's more in um like science and technology studies mm-hmm. and she's described herself I think she's described herself before as being like a like she, she like studies like white settlers like and should like like and I think about like my my research interests are very much in like white people studies and sort of like within like within anthropology <laughs> and, and and yeah and <laughs> and so she's um I I quite um appreciate everything I learned from her feed uh Zoe Todd um who I'm a like big fan of Zoe Todd's work. Um, and then someone else whose work we've not mentioned on this episode yet, um, which perhaps like deserves its own. Um, and that is, uh, Paulette Steves, whose book, the indigenous paleolithic of the Western hemisphere. Uh, yeah. So I recommend you, you look, you look into those folks. Yes, please do. And, Again, we said this up top, but if there's someone whose work you'd like to point us towards or if you know someone or you are someone who can talk to us about uh, indigenous knowledge uh, from an indigenous perspective, please get in touch if you if you would like to. We're not asking you to do the work for us, but we'd love to hear from you at the dirt podcast at gmail.com. And so there's certainly more to say on this topic and hopefully we'll do another related episode soon. We'll be back in your ears next week with new content, which you can find on any of your preferred podcast purveyors. You can also go to thedirtpod.com for all of our past episodes, plus merch, plus links to sponsor an episode, plus more. 
You can also find us on social media on Facebook. We're just the Dirt Podcast on Twitter. We're at Dirt Podcast and on Instagram. We're at the Dirt Pod and all of those are smushed together on the dirtpod.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.